I want to address the elephant in the room today. We're starting a brand new series today called Roma Perpetua, and the elephant in the room is what in the heck is this about, and why are we talking about uh, any of this? Um, it has to do with, we're going to talk a little bit about Roman currency today. Now, hold your applause, because that's exciting, but uh, uh, if you're a first-time guest, by the way, and you came, and somebody goes, what, what's, you know, like you're asking all the questions, like what's it going to be like, and what do you guys do, is there a series that you guys are in, and if somebody said, yeah, it's like this new one that's called Roman Perpetua, and, and you're like, and you still came, even though that's the series, because I totally would understand for you to be like, hey, I'm good, like invite me back when it's like, five ways to increase your wealth or love Jesus more or something like that, right? So kudos to you for coming out anyways, because we're going to be talking about this. I mean, here's the backstory for why uh, this is uh, semi-important, why I think this is going to be important for us. I did a, a little poolside reading in Vegas, um, and uh, which I know it's, I was going to try and be like, it was like 70 degrees and sunny, but apparently it's been like that for a little while here, so it doesn't have that kind of a jab to it. But um, it was really nice. And uh, so I'm sitting out by the pool with Corey McCoy, who was here for service. And uh, I pull out this book with me. I bring a book down to the pool because that's the kind of guy, uh, that's, that's what I like to do when I don't have kids around and, and, uh, and I'm relaxing. It's a relaxing thing to me. And it's Rome. The book is called Rome and Jerusalem. And it's like 600 pages on ancient civilizations. And Corey looked at me and like, only you would ever bring that kind of a book out to a place like this. So, like you're looking around. It's beautiful. It's, it's warm. There's hot tubs and all this kind of stuff. And you're reading about ancient civilizations. And as I was reading, I came across... A uh, little thing about coinage in uh, in Roman currency. Now we're probably familiar. Or you're familiar with what a coin probably looked like in those days. This is a, a picture of one that I just randomly Googled uh, on the internet. But um, typically they would have the face of the emperor, whoever was in power, a face or a body picture. This one's body, but a lot of times it's just the head from the head up, uh, and then their name on it, and then some sort of a motto of whatever their campaign slogan was. And for them, it was a way of like the Roman Empire was kind of big and expanding, um, and many of them would never ever meet. Um, their emperor or who their ruler was, and there was no 24-hour news cycle, there was no CNN, there was no Twitter, and so this was their way of kind of getting their image and their authority out there. You're going to transact money at the marketplace, uh, just, be, just be aware that you know the eyes of Emperor Augustus are always on you, or Emperor Domitian, or Vespasian, or whoever it is in power. Here's what they look like, here's their name, and here's why you are lucky to be under their authority. And as I, as I mentioned, they would also have some sort of a motto, whatever their current campaign motto was, it would be imprinted on the coin. So I found some examples recently. Uh, Beata Tranquilitas means the blessed peace of the state because Rome was always about peace. Uh, Felicitas Republicae, happiness of the republic. Uh, Saculum Novum, the new age. And they would have their mottos on this. And, and uh, we have, this, this is uh, something that has kind of been a legacy even in today's society because the coins that are in your pocket, in your purse or whatever, or even on the paper money in your wallet have the United States motto on it, right? Which is... God, we trust. Did you know that's our official? Some of you are plurus unum. No, out of many one. That's different. The actual uh, motto, as instituted in 1956, in God we trust. That's our that's our motto. Which is which, but that's like not changing. That's been like the same for now. It, can you imagine every president who comes in gets to put their own motto on whatever currency come out? That could make um, some really different. These are MAGA coins. These are different. Um, so anyways, glad we don't do that, but whatever. During the reign of Vespasian, now if that name sounds familiar, it's because a few series ago, we talked about the uh, Roman siege of Jerusalem in AD 70. Um, in, in history, this is a big deal. Rome is kind of putting up with Jerusalem and kind of they're like, they're like far enough away where they kind of started kind of poking the bear a little bit and uh, eventually got to be the point where, where the emperor says, 
just go in there and wipe everything out, right? So then he sends Vespasian down to lay siege on Rome. They build a big wall around it, and the siege lasts for several years. In between that time, uh, the emperor ends up dying, and Vespasian is called back to Rome to serve as emperor. So that's the Vespasian we're talking about. After this, he would mint a coin, and one of the coins that he would have, that he had his face on, he would have his name on, and then his motto that was on the coin was Roma Perpetua, which is why we're doing this series called Rome uh, Perpetua. Roma Perpetua means, meant Rome in perpetuity, or another version of the coin that came out a little bit later that year would be Roma Eterna, which means Rome Eternal. In other words, this big giant empire that we have built is going to go on and will never cease. This thing has gotten so big, it is literally too big to fail. Um, they had, from, from their known world, they would have kind of like their map of their globe would be just like basically Europe. And as far as they could reach, like their mass was so big, they really felt like at this point, Rome is never not going to exist. It may shift, it may flux as, as nations do, but at this point, and they would know, listen, they would know, they would have people come up and be like, well, yeah, but that's kind of what the Assyrians thought, and that's what the Persians thought, and that's what Alexander the Greek thought with all the Greek you know, nation deal, and now look at where we're at, and you're just the new kid on the block in this way. And I guarantee them, just like every person in every different era of those times would be like, yes, but this time is different. This time, look at how big this thing is. This is the eternal city. This is going to continue on in perpetuity for as long as we can see. This thing has gotten so big, I just don't see how it ever goes away. Roma Perpetua. So if you prefer, if that slide is too Latin, it's too whatever for you, I totally get it. I came up with a different title slide for you to be able to show you that kind of makes it in more like you know everyday language. If you prefer this, the series can be what is will always be, okay? That's the, that's the series. What is will always be. Never mind the fact that history shows that nations come and go. It always feels like this time is different. Now, it's interesting because even today, like if you go and visit Rome this summer, one, please take me with you. Number two, um, what you're going to see are a lot of old building structures. Like the, the, the whole thing is appeals to the ancient. As impressive as it would be, it's primarily driven by tourism now. The world's biggest decisions politically, monetarily, whatever, are not being made in Rome. The entire draw of Rome at this point is come and see what once was. And the advertisements they have for Americans like us is, listen, your nation is like 450 years old. We have toilets older than your nation. Come see what people used to poop in, and it's older than what you had. Like, come check it out, and you'll see it. Like, in that and in, I want to draw attention to, in that moment, when that coinage was first produced, it felt very self-evident. Roma Perpetua, what is will always be. Well, yeah, but what about, I, mean, I know, I get it, but I think this time is different. It just feels like I don't know what could come and take this thing down. I can't, in my mind, imagine another nation so great as to make any sort of a, not just a dent, but like an actual impact on what's taking place here. Now, let's make this a little bit personal, right? Because like ancient civilizations, world history, that might not interest you. But we live in periods where things in our life feel very perpetua. There are things in our life that we feel like what is will always be. Like what is right now will always be. For those of you with young kids at home, empty nesters will come up to you all the time and say something effective. Oh, the days are long, but the years are short. 
Enjoy it while it lasts. And you smile and you nod and you know it's true, but you're also very, very, very tired, aren't you? <laughs> and you say, this won't last forever. And you'd be like, thank, please, God, let that be true. Because I... I'm, I'm, I'm at the end of my rope. I don't know. Raising kids can feel very perpetual, right? Or maybe your job is fine. It pays well. It's nice to have secure employment. This is what you went to school for. This is what you apprenticed for for several years. It's fine. To change careers at this point would be painful. You're not even sure what else you do. At this point, it feels very like perpetua. I just, what are you doing this week? I, I'm going in. I'm punching the clock. I'm kind of doing the same thing. You told yourself. When you left for college, you're like, I'll never live in the Tri-Cities again. And here you are, like a tractor beam sucks you right back in, right? You're a junior or senior in high school, and it's just like, oh, high school drags on forever. And all the adults laugh, and they're like, it's going to be over before you know it. Enjoy this. This is junior prom, senior prom. You're like, it just feels endless. Like, it's what is will always be. Can we just finally spring break? We have been out of school for so long. Anyways. Perpetua is safe. It's very predictable. It feels safe because it is so predictable. So with that in mind, with that kind of a mindset, not only from an ancient civilization standpoint, but the fact that we as human beings can go through these kind of modes ourselves. It's interesting that one day Jesus is walking to his disciples, and it says he's walking by the temple with them, and he points up, and he notices what are called noble stones and gold ornate uh, decorations. Um, and he points to them, and he says these words, these things that you see, days shall come in which there will not be one stone left on another that will not be thrown down. Um, now, here's what you need to know about the context of kind of what he's pointing to and what's being addressed here. Um, every city, uh, not every city, but lots of, lots of big cities are known for like something in particular. And not only are they known for, when, when you're known for something in particular, then what happens is you tend to overinvest in that area to make a statement to the rest of the world like we are the best at this, okay? So for example, uh, when you think of New York, you probably think of there's a sense of like business taking place at New York, right? And, and so as a result of that, we've got like the big Wall Street. Wall Street's the location. If, that, if business is the thing, Wall Street is the representation about it, which is why you walk down there on a tour, you see, see the big giant bull statue right outside, and you can see all the stuff, right? If you go to L.A., L.A. is known for, like, entertainment and film industry. And, and so as a result of that, they spent a lot of money on this Hollywood sign that sits in the hilltops, and it becomes this iconic, this is the place that you go. Vegas, what's Vegas known for? Poor decision-making, right? That's what we know about Vegas. And how, what's the symbol for that? Fountains outside of the Bellagio, casinos that are just immaculate and, like, Disneyland for adults, right? Ellensburg. Think about Ellensburg. What's Ellensburg really like known for? This is the place you stop on your way to Seattle to go to the bathroom. That's what they're known for. What is the iconic place? We're going to invest in a Starbucks and a strip mall right by Taco Del Mar, and that's going to be the place that everybody knows about Ellensburg. That's what we know about it. All right. On that same vein, you've got Rome. What does Rome want to be known for? Rome wants to be known for power and government. Their structure is the Colosseum, which is the example of like the, uh, the apex of power. When you are the best and the brightest, this is where you go to show everybody to compete. And everybody gets there, and like it's like a big social event, and that's what's taking place in this. So, and everybody's fine with that. Rome, everybody in the Roman Empire knew Rome was about power and about government power and government. They've got all the capital buildings. They've got the, uh, the republic. All the, all the kind of things are taking place there. 
Everything's fine with that. Jerusalem says, you can have power, you can have government. Here's what we're going to have. We are going to have religion. In this ancient world, in spite of all of the different things taking place, all of these different cities doing their own thing, Jerusalem decides we are going to be about religion. When people think of what's the most religious, and where are we going to invest our own money? We're going to invest it in a temple. If we are going to be known about being about religion, then a temple is going to be our thing. So they would begin to invest tons and tons of money. They're over the, they would overspend on this to be able to make a statement to the rest of the world what we're all about. So what we know about the temple is this. Um, Solomon built a temple in the Old Testament. The Assyrians, uh, sorry, the Babylonians came in in 586 BC and demolished the whole thing, hauled people off to Babylon. Uh, and then uh, later on in the Old Testament, they would send some of them back. Nehemiah has them rebuilding a wall, kind of like starting the rebuilding process. And then really the Old Testament from a chronological standpoint kind of ends there and we don't see anything. And what takes place is in that intertestamental period bet- between the Old Testament and the New, New-, New Testament is about 400 years. And towards the end of that, um, the, the city has been rebuilt. It's been growing. And all of the sudden, you've got a guy named Herod, Herod Antipas, who's trying to make a statement uh, to both the emperor Augustus at the time to be like, hey, um, I'm going to make something great. I'm going to make a statement about what Jerusalem is about, and I'm going to impress you by building things. That's how they impressed people back then was create things. And he knew this, the people of Jerusalem and the people of Israel don't really like me because I'm kind of a co-conspirator with Rome. I'm sort of okay with Rome being here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to invest my own personal funds to build a bigger and better temple than even Solomon's temple was. It's going to be called, this would be known offhand as the second temple period. This temple would be started in 19 BC. It wouldn't end until 64 AD, a period of just over 80 years. And this reference that we saw in Luke chapter 21 to noble stones and all of the different decor, what they would have, what it would feature would be these big, giant marble stones, 67 feet long, 12 feet high, 18 feet wide. The gold, um, it was so ornate um, and it would be so reflective. There would be so much of it that when Josephus, the Jewish historian who writes about, like for, he works for Rome and has specific attention towards the history of, of the Jewish people, the Jewish antiquities is the name of his book. He writes about how when the sun would rise and the sun would set, there was so much gold in this temple that the light would reflect off of it from the sun's rays and it would blind you. You couldn't even look at it in the same way that you can't even look at the sun. That was There was so much gold. Tacitus would say it was like a, a, just an a, a amazing feature. You've got to go to Jerusalem to go see this big giant temple. That's the part. That's the part that Jesus takes these disciples to, and he looks at it. And he says, you see that whole big thing that's been in the works for so long? It's like this big thing that we're all about. Like that thing's coming down, man. Like that thing won't last forever. It feels very permanent right now, but it won't last forever. He's pointing to things where, like, we've done this too. You'll go to different places and see different structures, and you'll think, how did that get there? How did a marble stone 67 feet tall and 18 feet wide and 12 feet in diameter or whatever, how did they move that? Like, there's, there's different things from ancient civilization where we look at that and be like, how did Stonehenge take place? How did the pyramids work? How did they get all those things up there? This would be a classic example of one of those things in their period, and yet Jesus takes them there, looks at them one day, and he says, that thing... You see that? It feels very permanent, but this building is temporary. It looks impressive now, but in time, it will be dust. These things are not permanent, nor is God's blessing permanently, eternally on this building. Now, in order to talk about how this is going to take place, because in, in those moments, if those things feel very Roma perpetual. Those things feel like permanency. That we, we live as Americans, we feel like America is a superpower that feels like I don't know. I know it probably won't last forever, but it's probably going to last for my whole lifetime. It feels very perpetual for us. 
there are, and, and when, you, when you ask, well, what, what do you think could come along and kind of knock this thing down? Or what, what could take, transpire that this temple would, would not be in place? Or this government that Rome eventually will not one day be in power? And there's no way to understand, there's no, there's no real way to guess it as, uh, from this side of things, but it's always easier to see it after it's happened, right? Hindsight's twenty twenty. In economics, in macroeconomics, this is called a black swan. There's a guy named um, Nassim Taleb who writes about the black swan. There's a book that you can read um, about how, uh, and the idea of the black swan is we all know what white swans look like. Those are very, very, very familiar for us. And for, for somebody to say, yeah, but have you ever seen a black swan? You'd be like, those don't exist. And well, just because you haven't seen one doesn't mean they don't exist, right? And once you see one, you're like, well, now I can try and explain this thing away, or now I can, I can make this thing work. So this is, this is the example of, um, for him, in macroeconomics, this is why the, uh, the housing bubble, the housing crisis of 2009 occurred, the tech bubble of 2004. We never saw it coming beforehand, but afterwards we can kind of make sense of this thing. How in the world could all of the, the market completely crash like this? Well, it's a black swan. We didn't know it was coming, and then it did. In this way, we, we look at these things, and all of these things feel so permanent, and we fail to take into account, like, we... We can't control, we don't see how everything works in this way. Think about everybody who ever possessed that coin with that Roman motto on it. It was probably never on their radar that Rome could fail. It's too big, it's too much. It would take a miracle. It would take a black swan. It would take something that we've never seen before. Exactly, exactly. Now, Jesus says this passage, and I I, want to mention real quickly too that there's... um, speculation on this as a prophecy about this being the destruction of the temple that takes place a few years later. So this would probably have taken place in the, per, in, in the time frame of somewhere between 25 and 33 AD. We know that the invasion took place in 70 AD. So this, the early church um, thought uh, this is Jesus predicting the destruction of the temple. He's so smart. He's divine. This is his way of, of seeing this. And, and, and the rest of this passage um, really kind of speaks about like an apocalyptic theme. So if you, if you read on look, what Luke has done, he's gathered information. If you remember Luke's story, Luke is one of the uh, gospel writers. But he wasn't one of Jesus' disciples. He had to ask around and be like, so what did Jesus talk about? What did he talk about? What did he talk about? And at some point, somebody must have said, well, he kept talking about the destruction of things. He would point to some things and be like, this won't last forever, whether it's this temple or this nation or this world. And, and Luke combines all of these together in what's called his apocalyptic theories of Jesus in Luke chapter 21 and 22. Now, there's some speculation that perhaps people later on in an effort to kind of make Jesus look really good, the early church could have added these things in afterwards and said, see, Jesus was divine, even though they wrote it in after the fact. Now, I hear that, I understand that, but here's the thing. I really do think Jesus said something to the effect of this. It would be really hard to make Jesus say something in here that didn't stand out with his normal pattern of speech. You would want to be very careful. If you were making things up for Jesus to try and impress people about his divinity or whatever, you would want to say things that sound, that kind of sounds like Jesus in the same way. Listen, let's draw this into like modern day context. I would hope that if somebody who usually comes to Eastlake with you happened to miss today, they missed this, and they ran into you at Target afterwards, and they asked you how church was today and what the whole Roma Perpetua thing was about because they saw it in the email, and they're like, that's weird. And they asked you, so tell me a little bit about it, and you said something quite a bit out of the norm, right? You said, oh, it was kind of a weird Sunday. 
Like, yeah, dude, totally. Um, Brent got up and then he like passed out flags for worship and we all just kind of ran around and like waved flags during worship. And then they took four offerings. Can you believe that? And then worship was like 50 minutes long because Brent kept coming up and being like, I just feel like the spirit's moving and we're just gonna kind of continue to do this kind of thing. I would hope that some of you would say, hmm, I don't think we're talking about the same Brent or the same Eastlake. That doesn't sound like Brent. Are you sure? Like there's some skepticism there. So if Jesus, if Jesus is recorded by Luke as saying these things, I don't think it's out of bounds. He may not have said these exact same words, but I don't think it's out of bounds that he had this eye for looking at things structurally and saying that whole structure, mm, don't put too much faith in that. That's temporary. That's gonna crumble. Because remember one day he walks into a temple. He walks into the temple where the sacrificial system is taking place. And he sees what it's transpiring is people in authority are taking advantage of those who are poor. These people who are poor bring with them. They can't afford to pay the premium prices of city animals. So they take one from their own house and they bring it to sacrifice it. And the people, the gatekeepers of the temple look at them and be like, nah, it's not good enough. But good news for you, I have one for you. It's on sale, but it's not really on sale because it's three times the price of what you could get outside the gate. But since there's no other option for you, you're already here. Here's this. By the way, you have to use certain coinage to be able to purchase this. Lucky for you, I know a guy who can exchange your coins to make it. It's going to be, there's going to be some additional cost in that. Always additional cost, taking advantage of those who are not familiar with the system or are just out of this. And he walks in one day, he sees this taking place. And he flips over tables and sort of like a guerrilla theater type thing. And he says, you're taking my father's house and turning it into a den of thieves. This is just now a system for you to be able to make money off poor people. Uh Uh-uh. That's not how we do church. That's not religion. That's broken. Or another time, Luke chapter 13, verse 34. He's standing on top of a mountaintop, praying over Jerusalem. He's probably in like Mount of Olives or something off, off in the distance, seeing the city in, like a, from a vantage point. And he begins to record this prayer or this prayer was spoken by Jesus, words of Jesus. Who, somebody probably heard it and told Luke about it and said, make sure you write this thing down. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate predicting, like, listen, if you do not follow through on this sort of covenant faithfulness, there are going to be consequences to your decisions. Multiple times we see Jesus approaching things, having things to say about structures that feel very perpetua, that feel very in place, that feel very too big to fail. Jesus had a pattern of coming up against social structures, religious systems, and government policies. Things that most people would be considered too big to fail, or this is just how the world works, man. But instead of caving into this and just kind of allowing them to happen, he points out the flaws. He points out the inadequacies. And he says that something bigger is at place. Beware of the black swan, if you will. Jesus would speak of the providence of the Father and above, over and above the systems of man. He would say, you think you've got this thing in control. You think, I just don't see how anything could ever break this. And in doing so, you've really limited God's sovereignty over all of this. I don't see how this could play out. Well, yeah, but that's because your God's too small. This was, by the way, there's two different responses to this, depending on where you come from. 
for those of you who are impoverished, for those of you who, uh, for those of people who um, weren't qualified enough or weren't good enough or didn't have enough money or brought the wrong animal or whatever, for Jesus to address the, the, the religious systems of the day and say these are broken, that would be empowering to those types of people. This was empowering to those who were constantly being disadvantaged. To them, it probably felt like hope. And to those in power, he offered a reminder that ultimate control isn't something to be had. To them, it probably felt threatening. It can feel like hope or it can feel like threatening. When we live with this existence of like, there's things that are just too big to fail and I don't, know, I don't see any end to this, what is will always be. And for Jesus to say that which is may not always be can either offer us hope or be threatening to us depending on kind of where we're at. And I feel like I've been in different seasons of life where I've responded differently. I've been in both of those places at different points in my life. My emotional response to things may not always be this way has varied quite a bit on the spectrum of response. When things are good, I get kind of nervous. When I feel like I'm like successful at life, right? When I feel like I'm getting the statements from the bank that the principal in the house is getting lower, we're paying off the school debt, we're making progress in this way, and then I hear things may not always be like this. And I've got, I get my retirement report, and I'm looking at all this stuff in the stock markets. Just I, all I need is up and to the right. All I need is up and to the right. Things may not always be this way. I'm like, Ugh, stop. You never know. You better prepare for a recession. You stop talking like that, right? We get defensive about it. Why? Because we like the feeling of being in control in this way. We've got our Dave Ramsey emergency fund. We feel like I've got enough stock you know, piled away no matter how bad this week is. I've got enough money to make it through. I'm going to survive, right? It's because we've got control. We like control. We make it to be bigger than we need it to be. But I've also been on the other side of things. I've also, listen, when you're hurting, there are a lot of things that can feel like they are dragging on forever. There are a lot of things that can feel very perpetua. I don't know if you've ever been through a divorce, but a divorce can feel very what is now will always be. Like it's broken. I've like been betrayed. I'll never get over this. I'll never be the same. You say those things, you kind of know it's not true, but in the moment, God, it feels that way, doesn't it? You're, 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 you're single and it just feels like, per, you know, single at perpetua. Like, I don't know how this thing ever ends in this way. And, and I, what is will always be, and I just got to kind of get around with that. I remember um, when I was in that accident, like two years ago or whatever, I was in a car accident. First time I'd ever been in the hospital in my life. You know, I've always seen people, like as a pastor, you, you, you know, you get hospital calls, you get, you get visit people and they or you get you know, a prayer request or something, please be praying for me, I'm going through some healing things. And, and, and it's, I, 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 it's a healing process that takes time. And I remember um, being on the, the receiving end of that and them saying, all right, it's gonna be three to six months before you get function of this, and it'll be about nine months to a year before you're kind of back to somewhat normal, and you may never, ever be back to fully normal. There might always be something. And in the moment, you're like, oh, that's fine. And then like one, two months into this thing, you feel like this thing is dragging on forever. I don't feel like I'm getting better. When you're physically in pain and you're hurting, for them to, you know, a friend or a doctor or whatever come and be like, it's okay. Things won't like this won't always be. That's a sense of hope. Like you cling to that. 
I've never like been like the I've never been uh, diagnosed clinically depressed. Okay, I don't know what that's like, but I've I've met with people, I've talked with people who feel like in that mode of life, like there is no there is no upswing. In that moment, it feels like perpetua. Like I'll never be better. How do I deal with that? Like there's a there's an ailment and it's a chronic thing, and I'll probably never grow out of this. And that and that feels very overwhelming. And I don't even know what to do with that. When you, when you are, when the, when those things are taking place, when things in your life are outside of your control and somebody comes up to you and and says things like this, like Jesus says, Hey, the things that are may not continue to be. I don't react like, I don't say, you know, don't talk about that. I cling to that. That is hopeful for me. So this speaks to our humanity, you guys. This speaks to our humanity. There's a, a verse that, we, that we've talked about. One of my favorite verses ever it shows up in the Psalms. It's this prayer that the psalmist prays out loud and he says, God, give me my daily bread. Give me enough where I'm not so broke that I have to beg and steal and therefore defile your name. But don't give me too much more than I need. For then I will look at the stuff that's in my hands and say, I've done pretty good. Who is God? Why would I need God when I have this? This is why Jesus in his teachings, walking with his disciples, points out one day as he's walking along, because he has this conversation with somebody who's really wealthy, who has things, because wealth brings with it a sense of control. If I have enough money, I can get out of any situation I need to get out of, right? And then he goes, yes, but in that sense of control, there's something dangering lurking underneath. It's really difficult for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven, which is not the place that you go that when you die. He's talking about this mindset, this mindset of dependency on God. It's really hard for me to say not everything is a result of how good I've been or how well, I've made some really great decisions. Look at the car that I drive. Look at the place that I live. Look at all these things. Those can tend to be a result of the control that I've had. And for people to say, well, it's kind of not really in your control. Like some of that's just luck and the fact that you were born or the fact that you had parents who paid for your school or the fact that you had all of this and be like, just whatever, right? It's really hard to disassociate from that. And in, in this way, he's saying, but look at even that. The divine providence of God is big. And I don't, he's not trying to destroy you. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying like you didn't get there because of just you. There's something going on with that. So for, no matter how we react to this, there's a spot, a piece that we get to be like, okay, we not only do nations operate in this realm of perpetual thing and, 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 and like disassociated from it, we know that nations will come and go. Come on, we even know America, as great as it is, may not exist as its superpower as, as forever, right? Like we understand that. And yet when it comes to like our own life and we internalize this and we say there are things in our life that we feel like may just are going to continue as it is, it will always be. My kids are healthy. That's going to always be that way. May not. Um, I'm I'm wealthier this year than I was four years ago. And I've got this job that as long as I continue and keep my head down and my, you know, just head to the grind and I just keep moving on this thing, it's going to be good for me. It's going to be great. Maybe, maybe not. We don't like that lack of control. And yet for some of us, when we've experienced the raw pieces of life, we hear this and say, and we hear things may, that are may not always be. It may not mean that you'll ever 
that, that, that you'll be completely healed in this way. But what I'm, what, what, that, that piece of hope allows us to cling to a God who's bigger than the box that we try and put him in. It, all it is, it comes down to an awareness of how big are you going to allow God to be in your life? How much of your success do you push back on him? And how much of your failure does it force you to reach out to him and cling to him more? Roma Perpetua. Things may not be as they currently are. Things change. And God is big, and he's bigger than you, and he's bigger than me. So how do we live in response to that? That's what we're going to talk about next week. Hope you can join for week two of Roma Perpetua. Let's pray. Father, our prayer, no matter where we come from and what we do, and, and, and as I'm talking, we're, we're arguing with, our, with inside of ourselves about we're pushing back on certain things, we're accepting certain things, depending on kind of the season that we're in, how we respond to this idea of perpetualness or eternal, things that feel like eternal for us. God, give us the wisdom to be able to see the truth of your divine sovereignty in all of this, our, our role as respondents to your grace, and the courage to kind of live differently in light of that. In your name, amen.